Here might I stay and sing of him my soul adores. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like yours. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word. We pray, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You might want to have Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, from verse 9 open before you, since it's probably a a passage not overly familiar to to many. I can't say for certain what I'll be doing this coming Wednesday, but I imagine as Gwen and I start to realize that we're not going to be around the beauties of White Rock for much longer, I might be able to squeeze in a walk around Skatterick Island. And one of those uh, features uh, about that walk around Skatterick Island that I, that I enjoy so much is, is the fact that we encounter a couple of old friends, Paddy the donkey. Sorry, Paddy. Pa- Paddy the donkey and his friend who live at the far side of Skatterick Island. And maybe before we go, I'll get the chance to give Paddy one last carrot. G.K. Chesterton wrote this about the donkey. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. I think it would be probably safe to say that this donkey had major self-esteem issues. Another thing about this coming Wednesday, if the daily murder is to be believed, is that Belfast could have a very important royal visitor doing some things around the city and eventually showing up, if we are to believe the press, at Stormont. Now, one thing I think I can be absolutely sure of uh, in terms of this Wednesday, and that is that those two features, my walk around Skatterick Island and my encounter with Paddy the donkey, and my being here on the Newton Arge Road to be passed by on the road by a royal visitor, I think it's pretty safe to say that those two characters will never meet. That Paddy the donkey and Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II will not be in the same vicinity. Or if you want to modernize the analogy a little bit, I imagine that if anything goes wrong with the the limousine in which the the Queen is riding on, on on, on Wednesday that it's very unlikely I'll be getting a knock on the church office door here from any of her entourage saying that the Queen's car has broken down and could we possibly 
use your Nissan Micra in all of its glorious unwashedness. I imagine the Queen would probably say something along the lines of, we don't do Micras. We don't do donkeys. The events of that day in Jerusalem were phenomenal, not just because people who had aspirations of royal rule didn't ride in procession on a donkey. They were phenomenal because the people responded with such fervor instead of ridicule. Why did they not just laugh at Jesus riding up the middle of the road on a donkey? Well, it's because they knew their prophecies. Only one type of person would do this, the promised one. The trouble is they didn't know their prophecies well enough. Like many people, they had stopped at the superficial and the symbolic, and they hadn't looked beyond that to see exactly what those symbolic actions referred to. The prophet Zechariah, who wrote and spoke when many of God's people lived in exile 400 years previously, had promised a deliverer who would usher in God's rule once and for all, and that one of the signs of this would be his arrival on the back of a donkey. The problem with these people was that they saw the donkey, and then they projected onto this new arrival all of their expectations, many of them false, about who this king was and what he came to do and how he should do it. They saw the symbolic, and they presumed that they knew the reality. They saw the symbolic, and they presumed that they knew the reality. This is a common problem still, isn't it? People see the symbolic. I have heard some great talks on the symbolism of church architecture and why churches, I suppose churches like this one or maybe older and grander ones are built the way they are with towers or steeples and uh, various pieces of iconography. And it's all very interesting. But I'm not sure that the people out there get it. What do they see when they see the architecture of the church? They see it symbolizing some sort of religion that is there to keep society sane or to give them comfort at times when they need it or to perform certain functions. They see religious symbols like the cross. Many people wear one around their neck. They maybe have nativity sets in their home. And they presume that they know the reality of, of, of that symbolism. They project onto church and onto the cross that they wear or the other paraphernalia that they have at Christmas or Easter time. They project onto that their expectations of what God should be like, what God should do, who Jesus was. They see the symbolic and they miss the reality. <clears throat> you see, if the people had known all the Old Testament prophecies about this deliverer, for example, the suffering servant of Isaiah, even if they had known all of this Zechariah prophecy that we're looking at this morning, they may have been more prepared for what was to come. 
What would they have seen if they had looked at Zechariah a little bit closer? Well, the identity of the deliverer was outlined in two aspects. Who was he? Well, firstly, in verse 9, he was quite clearly royalty. See, your king comes to you. They would have had no problem with that. They were waiting for a king. They were waiting for a deliverer. Secondly, he was a universal governor. His rule would extend over all the known world. Verse 10, again, great, bring it on. That's what we want, they would have said. The trouble is that very often when the people of Israel heard the prophecies about universal rule, they didn't always put themselves under that rule. Universal rule to them meant rule over their enemies. It meant getting them smashed to pieces. It was about them being on top. Universal rule meant rule the way they imagined it. The simple issue that many of them forgot was that universal rule meant universal rule, and that included them. They were going to have to subject themselves to the rule of this king, and it may not turn out the way that they imagine or like. In fact, we see in the subsequent events of that week exactly what happened and that it did not turn out the way they wanted. What happened when things politically didn't transpire the way they imagined? They turned against this king. Now, as an aside here, this prophecy in the Old Testament, like many others in the Old Testament that promise universal rule, has been wonderfully fulfilled in the worldwide spread of the gospel of Jesus. Now, we can probably never emphasize enough in a culturally plural world that you can be culturally pluralist and theologically exclusivist. You can be culturally pluralist and take on board all the rich variety of uh, multinationalism and uh, ethnicity and still be theologically exclusivist. There is one God and there is one Christ. It can probably never be emphasized enough in this purest world that there are major differences, mutually exclusive differences between world religions. Now, we're not going to digress down that route this morning, but one thing that I want to flag up is that this prophecy has been fulfilled in the worldwide spread of the Christian message. Christianity is not a Western religion. It is an intercontinental worldwide religion. You don't have to learn a particular language or adopt particular cultural dress codes the way you need to do with other religious, major world religions, in order to be a real Christian. The king's rule is universal, and we have seen that fulfilled in our own day. Another point, like the Jews of Jesus' day, we need to recognize that universal rule includes us. The global spread of Christianity is not to be by cultural coercion, but by the spread of the transformational message of the gospel, a message that has liberated people from all sorts of harmful behavioral and belief systems, including the idols and belief systems of 21st century postmodern or modern thought. Even, dare I say it, the idol of Christian triumphalism, so that we enjoy stories about Christianity spreading to other parts of the world We enjoy stories about church growth. We enjoy the growth of our own church, and yet maybe never ask, how much are we under the rule of this governor? 
whose sovereignty stretches from coast to coast. So what does this deliverer bring? We look at verses 9 and 10. We see that he's a righteous king. Righteousness and justice may be separated in our minds, but they were very closely linked in the Hebrew mind. You couldn't have one without the other. They were used in parallel in Hebrew poetry. He would bring justice, verse 9, and sometimes we think of righteousness as a moral quality and justice as something we do, but they're synonymous here. If you are truly righteous, you will truly be just. There is no dichotomy. This king brings justice through his righteousness. And secondly, verse 10, his rule will result in reconciliation. It will result in a disarmament program that can only imply that nations that were formerly at war are no more at war. Uh, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. We can think of the more famous passage from Micah and Isaiah. Nation will not take up sword against nation anymore, neither will they study war. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears to pruning hooks. And not only would Ephraim and Jerusalem not need their weapons anymore to fight enemies, but they wouldn't need them anymore to fight each other, as they did at times in Israel's history. The two halves of the divided kingdom would be reconciled and would be one. This is carried on in the second half of the verse. It promises not just a cessation of hostilities, but real peace. A peace, says Zechariah, that is proclaimed. Literally, he will speak peace to the nations. The problem here is, of course, again, that the observers that day in Jerusalem didn't look deeply enough. You see, for Christ to have come and merely issued idealistic statements to his people, like some well-meaning peacenik, would have been cheap words. They would have had the right to say to him, show us how you can bring peace to this war-riven world. Paul in Ephesians 2, if you would like to turn to that, uh, takes up this theme and tells us exactly how Christ spoke peace. Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 14. Therefore, says Paul, sorry, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, the reconciliation coming in there, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came, in Zechariah's phrase, he came and preached peace, to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. More of that later, but the proclamation of peace was going to take a different and costlier turn than anyone in Jerusalem could have imagined that day. We go back to Zechariah. We see verses 13 through to the end, uh, and we see images of victory. There are images that were common in the ancient Near East of military victory, an arrow, sword, trumpet, sling stones, the sprinkling the altar with the blood of those defeated. Now, I'm sure you feel a disjunction here. Immediately after the proclamation of peace, 
Immediately after the disarmament, we have a series of military metaphors. The substantive difference, of course, is that it is our human means of fighting that have been removed. The, 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 the chariots and the war horses have been removed from us, from Ephraim, from Jerusalem, from humanity, so that God alone can wage war with evil. I guess that many today find the war and military images of God distasteful. Yet even into the New Testament, we find that while we, God's people, are called to be agents of peace, the images are still there, especially in the book of Revelation, of God warring against evil. Armageddon, the final battle. Now, where we as a church can get into trouble is when we, like the people of Jesus' day, think that we know how to wage war against evil. And we do it in our strength, by our methods. And we feel that we can participate on our terms. And we feel that God's on our side. No, it's God's battle and it's on His terms. There was one particular day last past week, I'm not sure which day it was, when I turned the news on and it was particularly depressing. I mean, it's usually depressing, but this particular bulletin was immensely depressing. There was nothing whimsical. There was nothing good. There was nothing redemptive about it. It's about abductions, rapes, abuse, murders, wars. And I just thought, how long, O oh Lord? How long until you sort this out? Folks, evil will not go away through wishful thinking. There will come a time when God will have to wipe it from the face of the earth and usher in His kingdom once and for all. The big issue, of course, is what right do we have to escape such a purge? On what ground do we stand so that we too will not be swept away? Do we stand on our own righteousness? That didn't save the people of Jesus' day. Their self-righteousness led them to crucify the righteous one. A murderer, they say, of the prince of life they slay. And we are part of that. Our sin put him there. Don't let's think that we would have been any different that Good Friday. Do we stand on our own righteousness? Or do we stand on the righteousness of Christ? There's a wonderful image of how when the Californian fires were sweeping that whole area a few years ago, that one family saved their premises by an hour or so before the fires came, they set fire to their own garden. And then they got out so that when the flames came, they skipped over the places that were already burnt and their property was left untouched because the fire had already been there. 
Now, folks, if we are faced with the anger of a God who wants to wipe out evil as he has every right to do, do we stand on our own righteousness and think that we will escape? Or do we stand on the righteousness of, of, of Christ where the judgment has already fallen, the fire has already been burnt, the cross is there, God's judgment has come on Jesus. So if we stand with Jesus, it will pass over us. We will not be judged because of Christ's work. There's so much for what this deliverer does. Of greater importance is how he does it. Because you see, we know that Jesus did not conform to any of their expectations. Verse 9, we see that he does it through humility. Not on a war horse, festooned with the colors and trappings of a champion. Riding in triumphal procession with his conquests and chains behind him. But gentle and riding on a donkey. Yes, as we have seen, his day would come. Victory would one day be his. But if it was to be that day in Jerusalem, who was going to survive? If it was to be today, who would survive? No, in order to win his people, in order to save us from his righteous anger, he comes not in anger or in final awful victory, but in meekness and in humility, giving us a chance even today to bow before him, to bend our knees to the service of this servant king, this humble ruler. And then even more unbelievably in verse 11, we see an allusion not just to a humble king, but to a crucified Lord. He was going to achieve this for us by the blood of his covenant, says Zechariah. Now, the only covenant that could be in mind here is one that would have eternal significance, one that would give us eternal security, that would enable us to be his people for all time. Yes, there were covenants already in existence with Abraham, with Moses, with David. There was the blood of animals involved in that. But none of them gave the people eternal security. The people that Zechariah was writing to were in exile. The people that Jesus was writing in in front of were in occupied territory. security of the people of God needed to be guaranteed forever by this covenant, whatever it was. Two older hymns, probably so old they don't appear in the Presbyterian hymn book, which is saying something. Two older hymns are, are worth explaining here. First, Isaac Watts wrote this. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And secondly, an old pietistic hymn. I found a friend, oh such a friend, he loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine those ties that naught can sever. For I am his and he is mine forever and forever. This eternal effect of the covenant that points us to something greater, something better, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12 spoke of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. By the blood of his covenant, 
By his own blood, this humble king ratified a new and living way, the only way of securing a friendship with God, the only way of securing a part in this kingdom forever. And then in verse 12, we have emphasized for us the undeserved nature of this. In case we were in any doubt, not only would we be restored through the blood of this covenant, but we would receive far and above anything we could have imagined. The Hebrew idiom in verse 12 is double. You get that in the famous passage in Isaiah 40, quoted in Handel's Messiah, Comfort my people. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double compensation. Folks, God doesn't keep an account of wrongs. We just don't get a measure of forgiveness that only just covers what we have done. It's not a case of God wiping out our debt to the final decimal point and not a penny more. No. He gives us, as Paul says, exceedingly far and above all we could ever ask or imagine. He wipes the slate clean. And then, as if that wasn't enough, as if we deserved any more, He pours His blessings down on us. Double grace. Grace added to grace. This is how our King comes, humbly, with blood, and with amazing grace. Is it any wonder the eyes of the people were too narrow, too restricted, too earthbound to see this? Can we see it? What about us? What does Zechariah in these verses promise to the people who follow this king? Well, there's a brighter future. The phrase he uses in verse 12 is prisoners of hope. The people to whom he is speaking are prisoners in a foreign land. As I said, the people whom Jesus was speaking to were prisoners in their own land. And we today, many of us are prisoners in our own lives. Does anyone want to say that we're not imprisoned by something, by fear, by despair, by anxiety, by doubt, by the past, by the future? The message of this donkey-riding king is that there is hope. You can be a prisoner of hope. You look down these verses of Zechariah and you will see the elements of that hope. I'm not going to elaborate on them. I'm just going to put them up on the screen for you to see them. Joy, verse 9, rejoice greatly. Freedom, verse 11, freeing the prisoners out of the pit. A homecoming in verse 12, return to your fortress, to your place of security. A fulfillment, a satisfaction in verse 17 of the grain and the new wine. The unity of verse 13 as the old enemies are working together under God's rule. Fighting God's battles, verse 13 to 15. And verse 16, we will become the crown jewels. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown, from being stuck in a dry cesspit in verse 11 
we become the crown jewels. What a transformation. Does it sound pie in the sky? Do you feel like a jewel this morning? Could God raise you to that status? Could He give you that beauty? Could He redeem you no matter how you feel about yourself? No matter how down you are on who you are and why God could never be bothered with you? You remember Chesterton's donkey that I started by quoting? The one with the self-esteem problems? Well, I didn't actually quote the whole poem. Because the devil's living parody on all four-footed things ends like this. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fiercer and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. If God could raise up a Paddy the donkey for such noble purposes, are we not of infinitely more value than a donkey? This procession that we commemorate this Palm Sunday was foreseen by Zechariah, who in these verses charts for us not just the events of Palm Sunday, but the whole of Easter week. Today it's the ride into Jerusalem. Then on Friday, after the crowd had turned from Hosanna to crucify, the noble blood was spilled for us, the new covenant in His blood, a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of old, that speaks peace to us who are far off from God. And then next Sunday, what a change within a week. Zechariah could, by God's inspiration, promise a freedom from a waterless pit because out of the pit of a garden tomb rose one who would be the first of all the resurrected. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, says Paul, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. That's the basis of our hope. It's as certain as the release papers in the hand of a convict. This Easter time, folks, we can be free because our King has come. As Peterson puts it, shout and cheer. Raise the roof. Your King is coming. A good King. A humble King who makes all things right. Worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that this Easter time we would know You in Your majesty, that in humility we would give ourselves to You, that on the last day we might stand 
dressed not in our own righteousness, but in robes we deserve not. And resting not on our own works, but on the blood of the new covenant established for us in Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.